Today on Blind Insights, young lives matter because if they don't, we'll end up with a battle between nihilism and fascism. I'm joined today in the studio, back in the studio finally. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you, Tim. We're back in the studio. And we're still joined. Thank you, Peter, for making it all the way out here as well. Uh, it's a pleasure. Nice to be with you both. It's been fantastic uh, having you on recently uh, through the interwebs, and now we get to finally see you in person. It's fantastic. So I'm very excited. And to change the tone dramatically, we're going to be talking about possibly one of the world's most talked about issues post-COVID, which is all that's happening in the US right now with Black Lives Matter, which has been recently reignited by an unfortunate... Well, not unfortunate, let's just call it what it is. Okay. The murder of George Floyd mm. by a police officer who thought it was appropriate to kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes mm. with three of his colleagues looking on. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, to call it misconduct is, is well, it's nice. Murder. It's yeah, it's, it's yeah. It, it might be misconduct for the three officers who looked on while someone stopped breathing. Mm, true. That's a whole other issue. Mm. And that's why there need to be charges against the other three officers oh, for at least not intervening. I don't even know what the charge for that would be, allowing murder to happen. Yeah, it's not a uh, part of any police agency in the US to put the knee on the neck. It's not a recognised mm. move. It's not a trained Well, behavior. it's come out of the new world of going hyper-paramilitary as if you're taking down Osama bin Laden's bodyguards. Mm. It's part of the new post-9-11 world of... America's got so used to ultra-aggressive security, it's glorified soldiers into warriors, it's taken police officers from community policing up to hard tactical policing, it's changed uniforms from traditional to tactical, it's flooded the world with equipment that's been to Iraq and Afghanistan, or actively defence industries have chased contracts to put excess weaponry and kit in the hands of police departments. You know, if you treat people like their tactical assault teams, they'll start to behave like their tactical assault teams. I mean, it's not. I, w I would argue with movements like, you know, hip hop in the 80s as, as something that I'll <laughs> reference to, that this kind of policing isn't isn't new to the post 9-11 era. It's just worse. Well, this scale is mm. totally new. You know, unless you got hit by a SWAT team in the 80s, you're just going to be hit by an angry person with a revolver and no body armor. <laughs> it, well, yeah. You're yeah. still potentially going to die, mm. but your likelihood of dying was not as great. Well, the act of bullying, I guess, from police has been... That's the universal bit, but yeah. it's a difference between being bullied by someone who's not wearing body armour and maybe you've got a chance of surviving even though you go to jail versus being by bullied by someone who's in body armour, armed to the teeth, and now moves in packs of at least four mm. rather than just in pairs because it's more tactically appropriate to move as a squad. Yeah. And patrol, like one, the, these things happen because there's there's hyper vigilant and you know critically suspicious police patrolling areas that are mostly inhabited by black people. Well, if you want audience, go back and find some footage for the months after nine eleven, when the New York police force developed the Hercules and Atlas teams, mm -hmm. and they were meant to be the ultra hard response to terrorism. Now every police force looks like Hercules and Atlas teams. Hmm. Look at our SAPOL 
police officers now, essentially in nearly tactical black with assault boots and baseball yeah, caps. that's a really good point. And that's not that SAPOL wanted to look tactical. It's that uniform suppliers said you've got these three choices. You can look hyper-tactical, nearly hyper-tactical, or only somewhat tactical. But they've become the only uniform options available in a world where the predominant market, the US policing market, all the gear is being flooded from the military to them. And in this heightened security environment, we go to this point of everything needs to look you know, hyper-aggressive, hyper-efficient. Mm. So we, you know, we even see the flow in, in uniforms in Australia to the transition that you know, happened after 9-11. I, I mean, this specific this specific thing you you can very easily explain by that. But I I mean I mean the movement that we're kind of seeing I don't think is just is just a reaction to this one incident. It is a reaction to let's say the selective <laughs> videos that come out and people see all the time of this this kind of behaviour from police that makes it look like as if it indicates that it's um, prolific, um, that it happens all the time. Um, well, let's and, look and at the prison population to... in America. It does happen all the time. Absolutely. Um, There's our proof. If you jail that many of a minority, then the majority of terrible interactions between policing and suspects mm. in America is going to be black Americans. So the the reason that that, that police antagonize I'm I'm just not sure that it's entirely down to the fact that police antagonize black people um is because they are the most likely to commit crime. And because I mean, no. you know, people who live in nice neighborhoods end up going for a walk and being uh, yeah, accosted by police. Is yeah, that basically. Yeah, just harassed mm-hmm. is maybe a good word. Mm. Yeah, but like I suppose the reason I want to unpack it this way, or at least I have so far, is because to my mind, Black Lives Matter is true but too short. Mm. Black Lives Matter, comma, but they are the most highly policed and jailed people in America, comma, which means police officers respond in a particular way, comma, which is a result of their training and habituation yes, and the level of weapons on the street. Mm. So when that fits on a T-shirt... <laughs> you, you put it on. Yeah. Because Black Lives Matter to me, well, and, Mm. of course they matter. Mm. But it's quite clear that since the murder of Michael Brown in August 2014, they don't matter. Mm. And they have historically not mattered. Mm. At the same time, I have, just to play devil's advocate here, if we're talking about communities, uh, black communities, there's a problem that there is a lack of critical investment and employment opportunities in those communities. The way that I've heard it described by conservative commentators is if there is a a pronounced amount of crime in a black neighborhood, businesses pull out. When businesses pull out or refuse to set up there, that means less opportunities and less amenities for the local community. And so the response to that seems to be kind of like a New York in the 90s type of response. Like Like a surge, if you will, of policing to drive down the crime rates to let investors come in to provide uh, economic opportunities there for young people, which will hopefully flatten out violence and uh, and crime rates. At least that's the devil's advocate position no, I've heard. I'd, for well, look it's, at what it's, it's actually what's, it, that is what happens. That is yeah. that is the that is the type of policing that mm. America has and it has had since the sixties. Mm. Yeah, but Have look you guys at, heard, oh sorry. So look at something like um, New York Three Strikes. Mm-hmm. Let's not solve any underlying social, economic, or political problems. Mm. Let's just say if you've been jailed three times, we don't ever let you out again. And that's how New York was gentrified. Is that is that how they did it? That's how they gentrified it. 
Oh, wow. Okay. They essentially did three strikes, you're out, mm. and put so many people in jail permanently that you could gentrify New York because it's easier to jail people because it produces another industry <laughs> than it is to actually solve social, economic, and political problems. So we've touched one side, that police have been affected by one thing. This is the shorter part of our story, the extent to which policing has been affected by global events and you know corporate trends. It's not just that. I would like, I would like to just quickly finish up on the police thing. Have you guys heard of the Kansas City Preventative Patrol Experiment? No. Okay, so... There's a, a specific type of policing that emerged in the, the, I think it was the 50s, basically, and just kind of grew from there. And it was that to make people feel safe in their community, they needed to have a higher presence of um, of police patrolling, and they needed to, and people needed to be able to see people being pulled over and ticketed, and 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 basically crime being addressed in front of them. Mm. Um, so like a um, like a panopticon effect. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So basically p- policing before that was let's say slightly different. Mm. However, what what happened was that they they taught cops to s- stop defaulting to truth. Stop defaulting to people the, the person I'm listening to is telling the truth. No, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. So what happened was they became hyper suspicious and they were hyper present. And the kind of profiling that was then introduced into policing in America was all about how can we maximize the amount of tickets that we give out and maximize our our witnessing, basically, of of crime. So what we'd call in Australia revenue policing. Yeah, it's what we tend to argue with. And and it's here too. This is Mm, kind of like a worldwide. Yeah, it's not actually about the revenue, though. The whole point of it, at least from the ideological standpoint, when it was kind of ushered in, was to improve citizens noticing uh, the level of uh, patrolling and police presence in a community to feel safe and uh, to, I guess, reduce uh, citizens' fear of crime so that those kinds of communities that were that businesses were pulling out of, mm-hmm. hopefully they could counteract that. Mm. The problem with the Kansas City Preventative Patrol experiment was that they found that even when they in- patrol, like increased patrols by ridiculous percentages Mm. didn't make anyone feel safer and even though they were handing out more tickets they didn't reduce crime they didn't Mm. reduce crime at all Mm. so the type of policing that we have it it, it might even be better to describe as revenue raising because it's not actually effective it doesn't work as policing yes and the thing too if you look at somewhere like kansas we're talking about the middle of the american heartland Mm. so largely you know white Farmers, tradespeople, originally there would have been industry mm. and a black underclass who'd been socially, economically and politically excluded since slavery ended mm. and who would have been the targets to the policing experiments. Mm. So in reality, I think what I'm trying to draw a distinction between is policing changed after 9-11 because of the world, mm. but policing in America has largely been the same since the end of slavery. Well, yeah. And that is to make sure that a group of people who historically have been seen as a threat to our social order and economic norms mm. continue to be no social or economic threat to our norms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it yeah. just got stepped up in terms of the technology and the level of violence. Mm. That's well, right. It, yeah, well, be- it, it became permanent violence as in bullets rather than beatings. Mm. 
it appears to what changed post 9-11. I guess so. So, but the, the point that I'm raising, I guess, with this kind of policing is that the, the profiling is literally about specific kinds of areas to maximize the amount of tickets that they write up. And so they're focusing on areas that have high levels of crime. Mm. And it ha- just so happens that they tend to be low socioeconomic areas. Also, which is, people that can't fight back. Be, yeah. Who won't go thing. get a lawyer. So that's the thing. You go into a black suburb and do this, mm. and everyone's living part time paycheck to part time paycheck. They're going to struggle to pay the fine. But the last thing they're going to do is go find a lawyer unless the ACLU has funded you know, a, a low-cost or free lawyer in the area. And that person is going to be overwhelmed by the really important stuff like child welfare and custody and things like that. Mm. They're not going to have time to be able to help people with you know, another case of harassment by a police force against a community that to have law and order we must control crime. Mm. What's the most obvious way to do do that when historically you've criminalized black culture? Yeah. I mean but I guess I guess my point is that um the kind of ideological backing of this isn't racist. Yes it is. Well it's just been well covered as not being racist. Of course it's racist. It was done by predominantly white political elite in a period in the 50s where we still had segregation. Well, good point. Okay, fair enough. So the people the people who, yes, I guess so. I guess so. But nowhere written in the kind of police training statement is it that we, you know, we should focus on black communities because they're the ones who need the most policing. It's no, because just, you don't need to say it when it's been socially normalized. I guess so. But my point is, well... Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I hadn't really kind of thought about the fact that just because it was in the 50s then it was basically inherently racist, which kind of makes sense. But Well, f- what would be fascinating if we could go back is did the Kansas police force have any black police officers? Mm. Yeah, or did th- it have a many. segregated black unit only sure. for the black community because you would never let a black police officer mm. police white people? Mm. So there's some fascinating questions there about even if you had. So I'm trying to remember what year the U.S. military became integrated. It was, you know, during the Vietnam War from memory out of necessity because, you know, young black guys couldn't find a way out of being conscripted. Young white guys could. Families would pay to find them a way out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you had to make integrated military. It'd be interesting to know that was overseas. That wasn't policing. That was sending away the black community and essentially the white trash who couldn't get out from being conscripted to wars that no one wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. But it'd be fascinating to know when we actually start seeing any number of black police officers in US police forces and them being allowed to be police officers in predominantly white areas mm-hmm. and have a socially responsible role within society and be publicly accepted as a you know a figure of social order and value. Mm. Uh, okay, so what what I would like to suggest is that the police officers that they have in America, bar some who are incapable of controlling themselves in the way that they should be considering their position, uh, actually the majority of police are very good at their job. It just so happens to be that their training biases them toward... Precisely. Yes. Training and habituation. Mm. Right. The, so The selection it, to choose mm. police officers means they pick very calm, very reasonable people. Mm-hmm. And then you are trained to rev up. Mm-hmm. or calm down depending on the situation. That's right. And then habituation tells you where's the greatest threat. Mm-hmm. And if we look at just the, you know, the last 40 years, drugs means there's money to be made for communities who are economically excluded. Yeah. The two biggest communities who are economically excluded are black Americans and Latino Americans. Mm-hmm. 
which means gang culture is grown in both to make money out of drugs. Mm-hmm. Weapons you know, flow freely, which means you combine very identifiable people, young black and Latino males, lots of guns and lots of drugs. So immaterial of the quality of the selection for a police officer and the quality of the training to keep it calm, in reality, who's going to shoot you? Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, if I can play devil's advocate again, as I want to do, I think when I think about, you know, we talk about processes and procedures. When I try and think about a procedure which would be safe for the citizen, but also provide for the safety of the police officer to a degree where uh, when people still want to be police officers, I think that's very difficult. I mean, obviously, don't put your knee on the neck of somebody who's begging for breath for eight minutes. That would be fairly sensible. And that's not part of their uh, procedure as far as I can tell. But in terms of how do you provide for both the safety of a police officer who's out on the beat? You've already got to the mega question here, Peter. Mm. And that is black lives can't matter until society changes Mm. and society changing means also police officers have to change Mm. so unless you are going to change economic opportunities increase social inclusion increase sort of political voice and get guns off the streets have better drug policy Mm. then you can change policing but policing is the last thing that's going to change because if you only get any one of these things in place the reality is the young black or Latino guy is still going to pick up a gun potentially exactly. to buy or sell drugs mm-hmm. and the cop is still going to be confronted by that young guy yeah. who's grown up with 40 years of popular culture glorifying violence. You know, and the kid the kid doesn't want to go to jail for 40 years if he's got the a kid would rather of, go out with a bang. Well, exactly. And you know, and the and the police officer if that person isn't being immediately mm. compliant has in their mind the possibility that that person has a weapon or is preparing to use a weapon or is going to retrieve a weapon. I mean, I, it's like, obviously, th- this gentleman in the in America was murdered by that police officer. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty much mm. beyond... Um, yeah, let's just call it murder. That's it, what yeah. the autopsy says. Yeah, it's murder. But it's like, in terms of what would I do in a situation where I was faced with somebody that were, that you know I was called out because of a disturbance I was faced with a group of young men those yeah, but young... you weren't let's keep it with George Floyd okay sure it's a guy who's used a, a fraudulent $20 bill mm. <laughs> I think that's all we need to say mm, sure yeah and not a 20 year old little gangbanger but but the problem up. is your but the problem is You've been called out to the, those things so many times. You end up with adrenaline for your entire. Yeah, but you've taken shift. your three best buddies who are also paramilitary. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, you got enough people that if you can't tell, you can handle anything tactically. Mm. And that it seems novel to keep your knee on someone's neck for eight minutes. Mm. The problem is that jobs like policing in environments where you've excluded a population for over a century, and you've given them very little economic and social choice for over a century. Mm doesn't matter how well you select. Mm. You habituate to the norm of the experience, which is exactly what Peter was talking about. There's going to be a young guy with a gun who's willing to kill me so he doesn't go to jail. Yeah. How do you expect anyone to police in that environment for an entire career without at least a decent proportion thinking it is completely fine to leave their knee on someone's neck? Well, this is, this is, my, this is my thoughts on the topic and I'm so willing to be proven wrong because it is... I, I found I have found it incredibly difficult to wrap my head around just the contradicting messages and and perhaps even lack of information about this that it, it is is credible. But 
it, it seems that policing isn't the first thing to solve, even no. though that is what has instigated this. That's the last thing it's, to solve. I think it is probably what will follow on from other kinds of changes because let's say one of the conclusions drawn, I'm just going to pull back to this study again, one of the conclusions drawn is that um, crime prevention is more dependent on citizens reporting criminal behaviour than police being present present where criminal behaviour occurs. And, you know, I'm not sure, because black people experience such bad um, interactions, why would you call the cops? And if you were Latino, why would you call the cops? Yeah. And until recently, if you were Asian American, why would you call the cops? Mm -hmm. Wasn't wasn't there a person, um, a black gentleman who was murdered in his own house after calling the cops? Wasn't that a recent thing? Mm, yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. So, so yeah, why would you, why would you why would you roll the dice? This so is why all crime the, is yeah. just goes through the roof. This is why all these other things have to be addressed first. And that's not to say you don't address policing, mm-hmm. but you can't expect policing to change mm. until tons of these other things change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is the spicy bit, which is you know I'm I'm going to preface it by saying that there's been a lot on social media recently about how white people are incapable of understanding what exactly it is that black people experience in the US, let's say, or, or anywhere. I guess it, it would be the same for Australia in the sense that they don't necessarily have their friends murdered when they use a $20 mm-hmm. you know, for a $20 bill. bill. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that they're not you know, harassed for walking in their own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's true. We don't have access to what that feels like. And mm-hmm. we certainly don't have access to what it feels like to be in stuck in... in a cycle of hopeless... Impoverishment. Yes. Yeah. And However, I'd, I'd argue that just because we don't have access to what those things feel like does not mean that we cannot contribute constructively to the conversation. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a big fan of the of the intersectional idea that we have mm. absolutely nothing no. to say by virtue of the fact that we're literally not these people. Yeah, I don't no. like it. It's the no uterus, no opinion argument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a big fan. No, because in reality, the fact that we we're talking about this means plenty of other people are too. Mm. To my mind, the, the, the deep issue that underpins this is if enough people cared, it wouldn't be like this anymore. So it's like here in Australia okay. where Australians will go, we don't have a racist problem. I'm like, really? <laughs> Look what happened to that you know, young Indigenous guy in Sydney yesterday mm. where the police officer kicked his legs out from under him. Mm. He went face down on the concrete. Mm-hmm. Like, really? We don't have a racist problem? And until you solve an underlying racist problem, you don't solve any other problem. But you can't solve an underlying racist problem while one group of people are excluded to the point where criminality is their easiest economic choice. Mm. So all these things, it's the chicken and the egg. The only thing we know in America is that slavery came first. The only thing we know in Australia is labelling Indigenous people as a race who were going to die came first. Mm. They're our starting points so we know exactly where everything else in the u.s and to a degree in australia came from a total exclusion of the humanity and value of groups of people on the basis of the color of their skin so we know exactly where it started and guess what in both cases in both countries we haven't solved the bloody problems because at the end of the day we talk 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 but we don't do my fear with the protests that are happening right now is that that will be what eventuates. I, I love the fact, and maybe love is the wrong word, but I have been excited by the fact that people are willing to 
kind of bring destruction on on a system when nothing else has worked because to my mind violent violence is never the answer until it's the only answer yes the tim larkin thing that at a certain Mm. point nothing else is working i guess what we're starting to see in the u.s and even with michael brown you know in 2014 being murdered and again i'll say murdered there because it was murder too we see the beginning of eventually you go from hopelessness to nihilism Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem. We can't talk about black America as one monolithic lump like we can't talk about Indigenous Australia as a monolithic lump. But if we look in both cases at incarceration rates in both countries, young black males in America and young Indigenous males in Australia are so disproportionately jailed and jailed repeatedly that this is an ongoing and constant thing that represents lack of social and economic opportunity lack of political representation lack of society giving a shit Mm. Mm -hmm. and that that leads to nihilism in the case of the u.s where weapons are so easy to get Mm. and the drug trade means you're likely to have a weapon and be high Mm. this is a recipe for disaster and we are just as likely to see full-blown nihilism and people taking the advantage of that nihilism for looting so andrew cuomo's comment today's governor in new york Look, protesters, please protest peacefully during the day. It's your right, but get off the street by 8 p.m. so we can tell who's a looter. Mm. Now, the reality is he wants a clear distinction because he realises otherwise it's going to get even worse. Yeah. Yeah, people turning up to Macy's ready to take the wood coverings over the windows down, break the glass and steal everything inside. That's nihilism. Mm. But if you have grandparents telling you, hey, I remember Martin Luther King's speeches. I remember when we turned up for mass marches. I remember huge collective action. And guess what? We're living paycheck to paycheck with one person in the family working at Walmart and one working at Macca's. And regularly someone's been harassed by the cops and regularly someone in the family's been busted for dealing drugs. Even if that is only a proportion of the black community, that is a guaranteed path to nihilism. And nihilism is genuinely dangerous. You know, nihilism got so dangerous in Europe in the 1870s and 1880s that there was a massive conference in Italy between all the security services of the era where they agreed to just put any sense of rule of law aside and kill nihilists. Oh, wow. It's not talked about because it looks real bad. But anarchists and nihilists, it just if they did anything in Europe from that point onwards, died. Mm. And, you know, is this the next step we're going to see that as a consequence of looting, we're going to see the same kind of ramp up in police who are trained to such a paramilitary level Mm -hmm. and through their habituation day in, day out of my predominant danger to my life is young black males who are high with a weapon, that the police will contribute to the nihilism that is already nearly ready to kick off in the young male black community? And then I'm trying to draw some distinction, I'm not saying the whole black community, because you can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm. But in the young black male community, with the proportion that go to jail, what proportion are on the verge of nihilism mm. and could very easily be pushed there by continued paramilitary policing? Right. That's it. And, and you know, one of the one of my favorite uh, social scientific uh, discoveries is the correlation between a lack of economic opportunity for young mm. men and young male violence. It's something I've brought up on the show mm-hmm. a lot. I think it's an emerging topic everywhere, if not uh, specifically in in these communities. But I'm also worried about some kind of 
I'm also worried about the snowballing effect on the other side. You know, we have these riots going on, and I've seen it being used online as uh, a recruitment strategy for for white nationalism. Yeah, and 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 American ethno nationalism. And let's and, be blunt, they've got a wonderful history of ramping up and lynching people. I know they do, and and this type of and as those people galvanize there's likely to be more incidences of overt racism which drive um, uh, which drive the the frustration and fury understandably of, of black and allied communities so, so nihilism versus fascism you know we've, we've got a, what I'm really terrified about at the moment see the way I see it is that protests and riots were really useful back in the 1970s before the internet because you could you could riot you could protest and you would get in all of the papers mm. it would it would allow you to break the chokehold of uh, information dissemination because you'd be able to get your message out there. You can't hide the fact yeah. that there's been a riot for for people's rights. The yes. newspapers virtually have to report on it. Yeah. Um, now, I don't think... I mean, I'm not saying that... I'd like to put this out um, just, just for me. I can't speak for anyone else. But I don't want people to think that I'm poo-pooing their, um, uh, their right to be... Uh, um, um, aggressive and violent for things that they think are important. Like I'm not, I'm willing to uh, concede that I don't have all the answers, and that people may be in a position that is so unfair that they need to do things that I wouldn't necessarily approve of. And, I, and I'm willing to concede that I may lack the insight into people's lives. Well, I man, may lack the insight to be able to properly judge. Let the, me give you an author to go with that, so you don't yeah, feel sure. quite so bad talking. Franz Fanon, as Africa was decolonizing, mm. uh, a psychiatrist, basically wrote about cathartic violence. Mm. That until you go from being passive and downtrodden, and you take hold of violence and you use violence to liberate and cleanse, you can't be free and you can't be a complete entity. Right now, Fanon is an interesting guy because. He got military awards as a black African officer who liberated southern France from a racist, borderline fascist French general. Mm. Went home and was part of writing books about why we should basically you know, burn down the imperial powers. Mm. And then the comprador class, the class of people who he referred to as coconuts. The you know, Africans who were black on the outside but white on the inside in that they'd learnt to rule in the same way. Mm. They'd learnt to abuse the majority of the population the same way. So this is always the danger with violence is some of the arguments for it are so damn sophisticated and so romantic and so powerful. Mm. So you know, cathartic violence is a form of redemption to regain personhood. Gulp. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If not a little bit ironic that some of this cathartic violence is occurring in areas, you know, downtown areas in American cities where 50% of the small businesses there are owned by uh, minorities. Yeah, but those people have found a way to do okay in the system. What if you're this part of this minority who don't know how to do okay? Yeah, I'm just saying it's it's a little bit ironic yeah. that you can throw the brick through the cafe of somebody who's yeah, but it's your personal saved. redemption. Sure. Because... Collective action might have existed. Again, your point about hundreds of thousands of people on a march mm. for Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. Filling a street was amazing mm. until it did nothing. Yeah, right. It got basic affirmative action in the 70s, which appeals to have stalled. Mm. So yeah. what's the next step? You know, is it now that everyone has to turn up with a GoPro? 
So the peaceful protest films itself, but also films the looters, so it's proof it wasn't them. It also you know, films the cops, so that we see what their habituation and their paramilitary training has done. Mm. Is it almost the role now of a protester to be a permanent digital witness mm. to all the aspects of that, so that no one can anymore just claim, oh, it's just a mob being violent? Rubbish. Well, that's coming in more and more with uh, with the prevalence of of smartphones. Yeah. You know, in terms of what to do, I think as a stopgap, I think Barack Obama. Did you guys get to read uh, former President Obama's mm, kind of uh, no. notice about it? Barack Obama came out the other day and and released a statement saying that people needed to look at the political system in a granular way. Don't worry so much about the president or what's going on there. If you have a police department that's doing terrible things. Find out who hired them. Is it the mayor? Yeah. You know, what, You've got to take local action was yeah. his point, wasn't where, it? Where, yeah. where, is that, where is that power base coming from? Yeah. Figure out where it's actually coming from, where the votes are, you know, where the power is being determined and go and campaign for it. Yeah. If you don't like it, get somebody else in. And the great thing about President Obama saying this was you really see the point. Mm. You can be a presidential candidate with ideas but then hit a system that just simply goes, no, nah. machine says we do this. Cognitive dissonance says I ignore you. Mm. Well, that's that's the fear that I have about the entire rioting pr- project. Let's say at the moment mm. is that it's got it's it's going to be overridden by something that Americans currently can do nothing about, which is basically changing their president. Right? If the whole thing becomes, which obviously there's a there's a there's a vote later this year, so that kind of less relevant. But if if the if the picture becomes too big, no one's going to be do, able to do anything about it. Therefore, no one will do anything about it. I don't want their aims to be too vague and too large that it's not addressable. The mainstream yeah. media will absolutely frame this as a Biden versus Trump, oh, the friend absolutely. of black America yep. versus the villain. Because it of black makes it America. easy for them and they don't have to look at a granular level. Yeah. And yet, imagine if we got 100 good stories a day mm. from small towns and suburbs mm. about who's corrupt, mm. who's nepotistic. Mm. I suppose the other thing, too, and we haven't touched on this yet, is. Yeah, if we look in the UK, COVID-19 is particularly hitting the Afro-Caribbean and Asian communities, infinitely worse than white UK. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the data in the US is very similar. That if we look at the combination of comorbidities plus too many people crammed in small spaces, plus poor level of health to start with, plus just can't self-isolate, can't afford it economically. And, you know, again, whether there's any issues beyond that at like a, a genetic level, again, I don't know if the data's in. But really, you know, black communities have been sitting and stewing under lockdown and more likely being hungry, more likely genuinely feeling their part-time job is gone and probably having not been able to go to more funerals of people they care about. What a time for this to kick off. Mm. And was part of the reason that, you know, this former police officer, you know, put a knee on a neck for eight minutes, that the tension on the street was just getting freaky? Now, that's a explanation, not a justification. I still want this police officer to go to jail for murder, ex-police officer to go to jail for murder, even if it's third degree. Mm. You know, it wasn't manslaughter. It was an active thing to humiliate, denigrate and destroy another human being. Mm-hmm. I do kind of detest the narrative that it was that, that these things are kind of explicitly racist that 
I, I think the the racism that exists in that system is, if anything, like implicit and long-lasting to the point where you couldn't really, maybe in the case of this specific police officer, you could say that he was racist. I'm not sure. But you couldn't really say that the entire police force is no, racist not on an anymore. individual basis because yeah. it just doesn't exist It like has that. to be these questions of training and habituation in yeah, combination. definitely. And this is where you get to sort of the Phil Zimbardo argument that it's not a question of a bad apple sending the barrel of apples bad. Mm. This is a bad barrel. And the only question is how many apples is it going to wreck? Mm. You know, it's a bad barrel that's wrecking young black men. It's a bad barrel that's wrecking police officers. You put that combination together of the bad barrel that is highest level of inequality in American history. Mm. Let's just start with something. You know, let's bring Joseph Stiglitz in. You know, the price of inequality. Well, guess what? This is a Nobel Prize winning economist who says every time you know, inequality gets even worse, we get more and more and more problems. Mm-hmm. Mm. And... That's been known for decades okay, and ignored by those who could have changed it. So mm. theoretically, if we're talking solutions, would could a stopgap be some kind of campaign of uh, public insurance? Instant um, federal job guarantee. Instant, mm. instant federal job you guarantee. You want a job, turn up and we'll find you something to rebuild your neighbourhood yeah. instantly. Public, public insurance for, for businesses in at-risk areas perhaps to cover against potential damage and, and to try and encourage people to operate in these areas economically. Um, oh, and also support for, okay, you've got to the point you saved your money on your federal job guarantee to start your small business. Mm-hmm. Now let's make sure you get all the training to run one for free. Right. We're not going to subsidize your business, mm. but we'll make sure you know how to use the equivalent of my old and keep your books mm-hmm. and do your tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll make sure you know, you know how to just do the little things that up your chances of if your community supports you, you'll be making money, but let's make sure you've got the competence to do it legally. Uh, that seemed to me seems to me to be a reasonable medium term um, political project to try and alleviate some of these some of this pressure, maybe a tiny amount. Um, you know, it, it's uh, something along the lines of you know I know I know it's been a longstanding uh, discussion in the U.S. recently slavery reparations. That type of program seems to me to be a fairly good fit for something like that. Other than the fact that we have two Black Americas, we have was slaves mm. and arrived from the Caribbean after World War II. Mm-mm. And the two the two communities appear to be completely separate. And yet, of course, from a police perspective, they just see a black person. Yeah, yeah, right. So I would rather say you know, if we get into reparations, mm. we're trying to work out, you know, history of all sorts of things. If we just say turn up Monday. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, you, you wouldn't have to say this is reparation for people of a particular ethnicity or skin color. You'd more say this is a community which is suffering economically. Let's let's apply these programs in this area to try and alleviate some youth unemployment, mm. youth male unemployment, to try and get people to work more, have less free time. Mm. But if we're looking at from what you were talking about before, but the potential rise of fascism, mm-hmm. how many young white guys are also on the verge of doing something stupid? Oh. So this is why I'm saying let's just admit that there are some areas that if you're at a certain level of economic depression, mm-hmm. poor political representation, huge social tension, mm. that community just needs instant jobs and not frou-frou jobs. Mm. 
you know, jobs that you can do until you're ready and you've got the skills to go into the economy proper. Yep. It can't be sort of band-aid, just you know, have some money to do nothing because there's no pride in that, there's no skills in that. Well, I mean, look at this is a contentious topic. The this is such a this is a such a conservative argument. So I, I'm just kind of putting I'm putting it out there, but doesn't necessarily I'm not sold on it. Let's say because it it, it represents something that I don't. It doesn't align with my values. Yeah. It has good explanatory it, power. Yeah. Devil, devil's advocate. Sure. Tim. Devil's I've been, advocate. I've been doing yes, that the whole absolutely. Episode. Yeah, totally exactly. Fine. So look at I guess the the welfare state in America kind of encouraging things like baby mummers. Mm. Yeah, but this is the problem of just giving out money. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. why I'm saying federal job guarantee. That's right. Mm. You've so, got to turn up, and if you turn up and work for a while, that'll get you the right to get uh, your education paid for, as mm. long as you keep passing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's got to be about empowering, not handouts. Mm. Well, because, because an empowered yeah. person takes pride in what they do, and then they're perceived differently. And they perceive themselves differently. Yeah. This is the thing. They perceive themselves differently. And you like effectively black families are, are being paid off to disintegrate. To, to, Precisely. Yeah. And what they need to be is, is getting support to thrive. Yeah. So this is why I get so, I both love and don't know what to make of an amazing intellectual like Thomas Sowell. Mm. You know, yeah, black American conservative <laughs> who is just so smart mm. and understands so many things so well. But at the same point, takes a conservative line on so many things mm. and takes that conservative line that, yep, social things have contributed to all these problems, but there's still a proportion of black people who find their way through all of this shit. And Therefore, I don't doubt that there's a tiny group that do, mm. but that's not enough mm. and it won't solve any of the problems. Mm. So how do we get more people to take pride in being themselves, but in being themselves, they also start to thrive in a way that other people respect. Because the ultimate way to gradually undo social exclusion and racism, I think, is when people take pride in themselves in a way where we can understand why they're taking pride in themselves and we can take pride in them being part of our society and we can take pride in this is just a better world we're all building. That's the only way past racism, Mm. that everyone's got to take more pride in what they're doing and how they're doing it. It can't be handouts. When you're doing handouts, like, oh, we're giving you a handout. Aren't we nice? Hmm. Yeah, well, it's yeah. Condi- it's conditional. It's Precisely. like, a, it's like, it's like a, using tolerance in Australia as a word. We're so tolerant. Tolerance yeah. means shut up and stay over there and I'll ignore you. Yeah, tolerance tolerant is, tolerance is being yeah. silent about your... Precisely. Your, disdain for that person so it becomes so it's such a question of whether even then kind of welfare well i guess yeah what what you were saying with the job guarantee i guess makes the most sense because you're providing instant meaning and and kind of um an alternative alternative when it also helps uplift economically a community as well so because it like it's it's not clear that just handing out money like we've kind of seen let's say let's say baby mamas is a is a is a an example of that yeah that that is is effective um, I want to I want to kind of loop back around to something that um, Peter said earlier, which was about how part of this these riots are affecting other minorities, mm-hmm. if if not you know more black people, yep. and that has a whole problem in itself. We've kind of been qualifying a few times in the podcast about how you know black people are not just a homogenous group, and they don't all no. think the same, and they're not all affected by the same problems. But mm. you what I think what you could say. Uh, which is even more specific than that, is that the Tuskegee Institute conducted a study of all known lynchings on black people that occurred between 1882 and 1968. Uh, in that basically 80-year 
period, 3,446 blacks were reportedly lynched. Uh, presently, in present day, that happens every six months. Yeah, that amount of people. So there, are, there is a, a a small minority in of black people. I think it, it, the statistic is meant to be something like two percent uh, representation of the black population that are urban terrorists. They they effectively kill their own people. And part of what is affecting black communities is that they they are not united. And the kind of crime and the very un, uh, unfortunate consequences of the disadvantage they're born into directly um or cyclically affects them if that makes sense yeah well i mean a lot of that violence is probably drug violence and yeah. that, that stems from the same causes that we've been talking about a lack of meaning a lack of status and a lack of opportunity and how do you get it if you can't have it in the broad world yeah. you at least want it in your world yeah right oh, so I mean, if also, you're a little gangster mm. you want as much credibility as a little gangster oh, to go kill mm. some other little gangster mm. and the great thing is from the power position of those who make the world go around, if you're killing each other, we can just call you animals mm -hmm. and ignore the lot of you mm. and push the lot of you into a shithole like South Central mm -hmm. LA. Which is, which is... Exactly what happened. It, well, it's exactly what's happening. And, mm -hmm. and that's to hark on back again. That's really... What I'm most terrified about isn't the damage from these protests. It's the recruitment power that the extreme right the and right. racist groups are getting from okay. this. Yeah. And it is... To return to the historical normal mm. of institutionalized and mass yes. race and race violence. Yes, yes. Okay, so back to someone like uh, Thomas Sow, who who likes to talk about black fathers. I looked into this a little bit because um, it seemed to be like a, a nice overarching explanation for a lot of what was happening. As it was, it was the absence of black fathers in households mm. and. Um, it's something that gets talked about a lot by black conservatives and conservatives in America. Mm -hmm. That this tends to be the the, the 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 large problem. And and then I've I've kind of looked into it and I tried to find some kind of something alternative to that. But everything that I came across that kind of rejected the black father argument basically mm. just said that um, you know it's often quoted as a majority of black families that are uh, missing black fathers when it actually is a minority of black. Families that are missing black fathers. It? it is. What's the percentage of so black fatherlessness now? It's um, it's two point seven million. Uh, this is CDC, mm -hmm. uh, f which I guess is like the Bureau of Statistics. Um, it's not because it's cent Center of Disease, disease Control. control. Mm. But it's but, the only data we got. Is yeah. What we got. So they track research like this. Uh, mm. So they track data like this. Mm. Um, so they verify that uh, a majority of black fathers live with their children. Two point five million families or black children uh, have their fathers, as opposed to uh, 1.7 million who don't. Oh, okay. Okay. So, but let's look at which proportion are black families who are in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. One or more of the parents have got end of high school and a college degree. Mm -hmm. There's at least one full-time permanent job, tenured job in the family. Mm. So this is this thing of are we seeing one community or several and that's the problem. What, when all we do is label mm. by skin color, mm. we miss that this is a sort of inner city industrial decline mm -hmm. problem that would also be to some extent Latino and to a smaller extent white. But there are probably more indicators in common about economic and social position than race mm -hmm. for, for missing fathers mm -hmm. and generally for family decline. Mm -hmm. So, it, it and well, I mean, I'll go back to an earlier statistic. It was that it's quoted that it's something like 2% of the black population are the ones who are committing violence upon themselves. Yeah. That is 
well covered within 1.7 million <laughs> yeah. uh, of families who have absent black fathers. Um, and, and, you know, we have then the explanatory line that, that, that role models are not provided to young black uh, men especially and that they turn to things like gangs for, for role models and, and meaning and kind of and purpose and, and respect and status uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, in, instead of, uh, well, I don't know, constructive alternatives, let's say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to imagine the, the constructive alternative and to imagine it, you have to have seen it. And when all you see is sports stars <laughs> yeah, and rappers yep. and you go, I can't sing and I can't run. No. Hey, but I can shoot. Mm-hmm. So, again, the black father argument, I don't want to discount it because I think ideally all kids need both parents. Or two parents, let's say. Well, yeah, all yeah. I really meant was yeah. two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, um, just, no, sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, nah, to take it to a whole other level of extra stuff to think about. <laughs> on blind insurance. Yeah. Whether daddy and daddy or mummy and mummy make sense, that's a whole other issue. Oh, on um, average, they do. On average, they do. But just that if the parent who is there is working every hour under the sun, and this is a thing I don't think we understand in Australia, it's very normal for people in America to work at least two jobs mm. who are the working poor. Mm-hmm. Three is not unusual. I don't think we understand what it's like that the idea there could be a parent who cares desperately mm. but just is away mm. every waking hour. Yeah. And the best they can do is make sure that the rent is paid, the heat is on and there's some food in the kitchen mm. and that that is every waking hour they've got was taken to achieve that. So I wonder if there's more a harder to research question mm. of the power of extended family. Mm. 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 You know, we know in Africa that if you've got a grandmother, your chances of surviving and finishing school go up dramatically. Is that right? Yep. There's mm. all sorts of post-colonial studies studies that say if you've got a grandma, your likelihood of doing well in Africa goes up dramatically. Wow. Because mm. grandma has more time. Mm. Grandma has more experience. Grandma can be more focused on you while your parents work. Mm. So they're, they're culturally disadvantaged in the sense that their role models are far and few between and they're, I guess, exemplars, let's say, is maybe a little yeah, bit more. exemplar. Because um, mum and dad are amazing role models. Just work to mm. keep your family alive. Mm-hmm. But golly, if someone said you can do three jobs mm. or do something stupid, for a ten thousand buck payoff, mm-hmm. ten thousand buck payoff sounds pretty sophisticated. When in reality, all you see is your parent getting ground to pieces mm-hmm. by three jobs. Mm. Strange comparison, and we're going to a totally different place. But reading Ozzy Osbourne's biography <laughs> about growing up in sort of industrial wasteland, mm. Britain, mm-hmm. the factories are starting to close, the jobs are disappearing. He's going nowhere at school, which means he'll go nowhere after. And if he hadn't been our scream in tune, it's exactly where he would have gone. Mm. So this is not a race thing. It's a what kind of society do we want to build thing. Mm -hmm. So again, if I wanted to make a shorter slogan on the T-shirt, if we built the kind of society we need, black lives would matter. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. It's I think that's short enough for a t-shirt now. It, uh, yeah, okay. I, I, that could work. I, I'm going to be devil's advocate here um, because I feel like we've addressed enough issues that I can, I can say with at least the, the least racism possible <laughs> that... that um, I, and I don't support what all lives matter <laughs> stands for, but maybe black lives matter is too vague. Like, you know, if we're talking about um, the fact that, that the, the black community is not homogenous, that there needs to be, that we need to identify the diversity within the black community, as well as there needs to be some ideological, let's say, diversity in the black community, then maybe black lives matter doesn't, doesn't, isn't, isn't, isn't kind of narrow enough well, to actually focus to, any kind yeah. of, any any kind of um, um, policy action. after six years, it's become so vague. It seems to have achieved nothing. Mm. Well, good point. It, mm. it, exactly. Um, it, it, so it, it's, it's not not. I'm not saying all lives matter or whatever the hell. I'm not trying to replace it with that. I'm just saying that maybe Black Lives Matter isn't the right. I mean, it, it's got to be phrased. This is why I had the long convoluted one, and now I've got the shorter one. Mm. If we built the society we actually need mm-hmm. for everyone to do well and everyone to be able to take pride in their life and being a part of society. Black lives would matter because all lives would matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the reality is we don't do that. Okay. So, and race is hmm. the easiest way to say I can ignore a whole group or I can, you know, let the state loose on them mm. because they're the easiest threat to define. Mm. So I have, a, I have a question then. Is the most important thing that we can do from Australia, considering we really, let's say on this specific issue of the US, because obviously we have our own problems to deal with here with our indigenous population, but let's just focus on the US because that's where the conversation has been, is the most important thing we can do in Australia as commentators to change the at least the narrative here so that we can kind of stop some kind of allegiance to the kind of intersectional narrative without questioning it. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, That's a little bit. deep, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to propose an alternate T-shirt slogan. Okay. Because I, I need to think about what you just said. Young lives matter because if they don't, we're all fucked. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, I think we've I think we've done we've we've done a good take because we've recognised that these are not necessarily racial issues so much as they are underlying economic issues that disproportionately affect certain populations you know it's the it's the it's the unfairness of our system in some sense that we can have a person born in an inner city where there's no land to grow any vegetables there's no roaming space there's no animals to hunt and we can say oh no well you're you're meant to stay there you can't go anywhere else we're not going to give you money to go anywhere else we're not going to give you anything to do we're not going to give you any proper education we're not going to give you the things you need and also look out for yourself and behave and be a a model citizen and that's probably not going to happen I, i think the most important thing we can do here is say there are reasons why these things are happening they're systemic we need to come up with more creative economic and social opportunities for people we need to figure out ways how to solve the the root cause of this um, societal dispossession otherwise though the problems that are happening in america will start to manifest ex- explicitly here in australia mm-hmm. and, and and in and in violent ways because yeah, if you're addressing yeah. band-aid fixes like let's say starting with police reform as opposed to starting with societal reform, reform yeah. then th- then it it 
um, it won't. It, yeah, you won't address the problem, it's, and it'll it'll yeah. get more violent. It's like getting a it's like getting a bigger band aid. Yeah, yeah. Know, and that's not, all it is. Mm. Now we've got a trauma dressing. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. There was a great description once. I went to a seminar, and it was an Iraqi scientist who'd escaped talking about Iraq. He said Iraq is a wound, and every time it's half healed, someone decides to tear the bandage off to have a look how it's healing. So mm. the edge of the wound tears a bit more. Shit. So the wound is bigger. Uh. And then it doesn't heal properly, so they whack another dressing on it. And then when it's half healed, they tear it off again. And they damage the edge of the wound, and the wound gets a bit bigger. And this is what we're talking about here in the underlying issues in the US. Mm. And I'm going to revise my T-shirt slogan. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Young lives matter, because if they don't, we'll end up with a battle between nihilism and fascism. Mm. Gulp. Yeah. Cool. I want that on a T-shirt. I literally do. Mm. Mm. Gentlemen, um, I want to just open the floor um, for any kind of final comments or thoughts, um, and that can lead to as, as much of a tangent as you would like, but uh, I'll open it to Peter first if there's anything you wished that you had addressed or would like to say. I suppose the thing that's really stuck with me through this all is the, is the nature of um, the new media landscape, and the thing that I'm concerned about is that you can have an audience of people who you're presenting something for. Let's say the protesters want to get their message out to normal Americans who are receptive to to their plight. Um, I think we need to be more cognizant, especially coming at it from a strategic perspective. We need to realize that events like that uh, can be used by very many different parties to pursue their own unique ends. And I think we need to be increasingly uh, um, mindful of the way that extremist groups, both on the extreme right and the extreme left, are using these um, are using these moments uh, moments to recruit. Um, more than ever, we need to be mindful of the impact of our own actions. and uh, and I think that that's that's something that I'm going to be thinking of uh, into the future mm-hmm. and and our own words and yeah. my, my final thought is 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 along similar lines in that um i've seen a lot of um i can't remember what the line is but it's it's been prolific on facebook as well it's been like it's 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 something like um uh if 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 you if you're if you don't do anything then you're as like as bad as the the racists or, or whatever and it is look, <laughs> I love that people are. I love that people are protesting. I love that people are keen to show their solidarity, but I, I think when you get into territory of when you get into territory of if you don't do this gesture, mm-hmm. then you are an active racist. That's what I mean when I say we need to be really mindful of our of our messaging because you know mm-hmm. white white let's say well no I won't even say white well intentioned people are spreading that stuff they're saying hey you know I'm going to change That's my right. profile picture to black and if you don't do it mm. then you're part of the problem. That's right. Ah, yeah. Look, it, it when you get things like that, you think mm, more tokenism. Do you think yeah. more people are going to be offended by mm. the by the implication, or are more people going to be swayed to the argument? And I would say, people, more people are going to be offended by it mm. than swayed yeah. by the argument. So you've got people who aren't necessarily part of that at risk group yeah. who are taking actions on social media mm. to. Uh, uh, to increase their own esteem mm-hmm. at the potential cost of the movement. And yes. that annoys me yes. a lot. Yes, it annoys um, me a lot too. 
Right. It, I, I think I think that that is part of not questioning the um, the, the the intersectional agenda. I guess, like I said earlier, because I think what it does for people who haven't made their mind up or haven't heard enough about it, like most Australians, really, mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it much because the information we don't we 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 don't actively talk about it much, and maybe and and that is something that we could be doing. Um, but but for people who haven't thought about it much or haven't heard about it enough, then um, th- th- there is an insecurity when you read something like that mm-hmm. that makes you want to share it. Because if you if you have basically no opinions mm-hmm. and you see something like that, mm-hmm. it's like, well, oh, well, I don't want to be a bad person. I'm going to share it, and then it becomes mm-hmm. it, it, it 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 becomes a keeping up with the Joneses. Exactly, and you don't and you don't think about what it actually means. Mm-hmm. You necessarily just, you, you just, just you just say well, the, I don't want to yeah exactly I don't want to be the bad guy so it's really insidious I think but. yeah it's 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 really insidious and and you know this is this is something that I could easily rant about for an entire blind insights episode <laughs> but there is a there's a parallel there's a parallel commodity it's a social it's a social commodity of wokeness mm. that's being bought and traded in by people and I similarly to the riots I think it is being utilized by bad actors on both sides mm-hmm. to do more harm than it does good. Mm-hmm. That, that's just my, that's just my uh, little thought bubble. Your t-shirt. As, yeah, that's my little <laughs> yeah. t-shirt. Or I think my t-shirt will say, even though sometimes I condemn people's actions, both physically or verbally, I also recognise that my lived experience does not necessarily encompass their anger and grief, and and um, mm. and uh, and should not determine your actions. If you think you need to protest or say something today, please do it. Please don't avoid it because of, of what I've said. But maybe maybe take it into consideration. David, any final thoughts? Final thought, I think, is I wish I could remember the exact words that George Floyd's brother said. But the essence was, think for yourself, make up your own mind. Don't let people tell you what to think about anything that's going on at the moment. Because his implication, I think, was he could see that what happened to his brother was going to get hijacked by all sides. And he was like, don't let it get hijacked. You do your own research and make your own argument. Make your own decision. Which seems the most powerful thing because it seems to me that if reasonable people do that, well, sorry, if people choose to use reason and do that, then they'll see there's big issues that need to be addressed at the root to get a better outcome. Mm -hmm. Thank you, David. And thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, listeners. It's lovely to be here again. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.